Time once again to talk family law with the good folks over at JDSA Law Firm right here in Wenatchee. Joining us once again is Mike Vanier with JDSA Law. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Clint. Good to be back. You know, we've talked about a ton over the last few weeks, everything uh, from custody to the initial things you have to think about if you and your spouse are looking at splitting up. But let's talk about developing a parenting plan. This is a huge part of your new normal once this is once uh, once a marriage is dissolved. Let's back up for a second. Let's do the 30,000 foot view. I'm sure a lot of spouses, even in the most uh, cooperative or acrimonious of, of divorces, they get to the point where they're talking about the parenting plan. And I mean, uh, maybe paralysis by over analysis, because there are so many details to go over. How many clients walk into your office and say, God, Mike, where do we start? Well, almost all of them, because they haven't been through this before. And the parenting plan is usually the most emotional part of a divorce case because you're dealing with your kids. Um, But people typically don't know what a parenting plan looks like or what a residential schedule looks like unless they have friends that have gone through it. And then they get a a pretty quick synopsis and, and know what to expect. But typically, what you're going to have is you're going to have a primary parent. And that parent is the parent with whom the children live most of the time. And a typical parenting plan looks like this. Um, The non-primary parent will get the kids every other weekend and then have one midweek visit each week, um, usually on a Wednesday from the time school is released until 7 p.m. or something like that. It's driven uh, in some part by the age of the children and sometimes the non-primary parent can have a weekend that extends from Friday to Sunday. But uh, if the parents get along really well and the children are a bit older, it's also possible to have a 50-50 split where the children spend an equal amount of time with each parent. But the court typically will not approve of that um, or order that if there's a conflict between the parents. Okay. What about, I guess, geographical distance? Is it important for both parents to live within a certain distance from each other? Or if, say, one parent only sees their children every other weekend, can they live farther away? They can live farther away. The problem is that if you live across the country, you're not going to have anything like every other weekend or even one weekend per month. Typically what happens in that situation is that the parent that lives further away that is not the primary parent will have bigger blocks of time, but less often through the year. It's advantageous to the children if the parents live close to each other because then the children can have more contact with both parents, which I think benefits the children. What about when the child is with the other parent? How often can you contact that child? Uh, how often can you can you talk to them? Well, it, it depends. You know, it, really what the court looks at is what's reasonable for the child, what's best for the child. And... The court will draw the line at some point on uh, really frequent emails or phone calls because at some point it starts interfering with the life of the the child and their relationship with the other parent. Right. Uh, And so you can build in schedules for contact two or three times a week. If the parents get along and it's not a problem for the child, you can have daily contact as long as it's at reasonable times. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's not like you want to call right after bedtime every single day, right? Right, and, and believe it or not, that is a problem in some cases. Wow. Well, what about the special times, vacations, holidays, special days? Everybody wants their kid on Christmas morning. Right, and that's built into the parenting plan. 
And usually if the, uh, the parents have attorneys that have some experience with these types of cases, that isn't a problem. What the court typically does is it alternates holidays. And, and so if one parent has Memorial Day one year, then the other parent will have it the next year. Um, the summer schedule, uh, typically that's a time when the child gets to spend a roughly equal amount of time with each parent. Right. Let's talk a little bit about health care. I mean, it's, it's, these are big decisions, and usually they were made in concert, but if you have two parents, they're still your kid equally, but how do you come to a decision on that? Well, uh, typically in the parenting plan, it will provide for joint decision-making on non-emergency health care. And so um, if it's a situation where uh, you've got dental work or uh, some other kind of medical treatment that's required that isn't an emergency, then the parents should be talking about that. They should reach an agreement. Braces is another thing. That's a fairly common one where one parent says, well, it's not really necessary. I don't want to spend the money on it. If it's not necessary, the other parent says, no, we have to have it done. If they can't agree, then the court will have to decide. And obviously your counsel to them is you guys come to an agreement because you probably don't want the court to decide on this one. Right. And and typically um, I'll recommend to a client that they should go to court if it's an obvious decision. It's an easy decision for the court to make and the other party's just being unreasonable. Right. What about child care issues? I mean, obviously, if you're a parent, you want your child to be as well as possible. But how you go about that, sometimes parents look at that a little differently. Well, typically what happens is that if the child is in your care at a specific time and you're working, for example, at the time that the child is finished school and needs some after school care, then it's that parent's responsibility to make those arrangements. But what happens sometimes is that parents go away for overnight trips, that kind of thing, and the other parent thinks, well, you know, if, if, if I'm available, then I should have the child in my care. That creates potential for conflict um, between the parents, and my recommendation usually is don't uh, look for a right of first refusal, which is what the parent who doesn't have primary placement would typically want. Right. And, and so... Um, what I recommend to my clients is that is potential for all sorts of conflict. Just provide for the care for your child during your residential time, and the other parent can do that during their time. Another deal that I'm sure is a source of conflict is extracurricular activities for kids. I mean, you have one type of parenting that is you have to keep the kids engaged and active in this club and that club and the other thing. And then you have the strain of parents that saying, look, kids need time to lay in the yard and look at the clouds. So when you have that type of dynamic or, you know, you both realize or you both decide Johnny needs to be in five different clubs, who pays for that? Like all of those details, how do you go about figuring that out? Well, who pays for those activities is typically provided for in the order of child support. And it spells out um, that if one parent signs a child up for an activity and the other parent doesn't agree with it, then that other parent shouldn't have to pay. If they both agree on the activity, then they should pay according to their pro rata share of the total net monthly income, which is something that's set out in the child support worksheets. Now, when it comes to deciding on activities, typically parents can sign kids up for activities while the children are in their care during their residential time. But if that bleeds over into the other parent's time, there isn't really an obligation on that parent to have the child participate. 
And that typically happens with the non-primary parent because they don't want their limited time interfered with. Um, and, and you can build in a provision to a parenting plan that says that each parent must take the child to extracurricular activities, but the court typically won't do that unless the parties agree to it. Okay. What about extended family? You know, the dreaded mother-in-law isn't the mother-in-law if she's not your mother-in-law anymore, but they're still the kid's grandma. Right. And grandparents don't have any right to visitation. And so if they're going to be afforded an opportunity to spend time with the children, then typically what happens is that, um, let's say the mother is the primary parent, the mother can have the children with the grandmother or grandfather during her residential time. And, and likewise with the other parent. If they want the children to spend time with uh, the, the grandparents, then it's typically on their respective time. Okay, let's hopscotch back to vacation time uh, and travel with the kids. Now, do you need to let the other parent know about all travel? Like if you're living in Seattle, we're going to go to Bellingham for the day, or is it just simply travel that's out of the state? Well, unless it's provided for in the parenting plan, unless it says specifically that if you're taking the kids out of state or taking them out of town, then you have to provide advance notice to the other parent. There's no legal obligation for them to do it. But as a matter of courtesy, if you're leaving town with the kids, you should always tell the other parent. Absolutely. Well, what about leaving the country? I'm sure you have to tell your parent, your uh, your 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 former spouse about that. But I mean, what hoops do you have to jump through to make sure that everything is copacetic? Well, you actually don't have to tell them. In really? Yeah, unless it's provided for in the parenting plan. But again, as a matter of courtesy, you should. But um, you typically will be required to get the consent of the other parent, um, so that when you go through immigration or customs, you have that consent. Right. So, and that means you have something, what? I mean, the full meal deal written, notarized, the whole the whole shebang? Well, it doesn't have to be notarized, but it has to be signed by the other parent. Okay. And then who will keep the child's passport full time? Again, that's just the parenting plan? Hash it out? No, it's typically the primary parent that does that. Okay. We're talking with Mike Vanier with JDSA Law Firm, where we're talking about, in this uh, instant, developing a parenting plan for your children. Anything you want to add? Anything that we missed? I mean, I know there's a lot we can cover with this here. Well, as I said earlier, uh, parenting plans are the most emotional aspect of any divorce case. And, and what I recommend to people is that they be reasonable, because divorce is more difficult on children than anybody else. And, and typically, nobody wins in divorce cases. Everybody uh, struggles to some extent, the children more than anybody else. And if you can get along and try and develop a parenting plan that is in the best interest of the children and not in the best interest of the parent, then that will be a successful situation. Folks, I want to talk more with you about these issues. Where can they contact you or your, co- uh, or your colleagues at JDSA? Uh, they can contact me by calling 662 3685 or by email. My email address is mikev at jdsalaw.com. Thanks so much, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, Clint.